Oscar Wilde said, the second worst thing in the world is when everyone's talking about you. And the first worst thing is when no one's talking about you. And that applies, I think, to design thinking as well, or improvisation or any of the techniques which we, or any of the buzzwords we get linked to. People have heard them and that makes, you, makes it easier in some cases and harder in others. And often those cases are in the same room. Hi, I'm Adam from Workplay Experience and the Global Service Jam, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist and venture builder running two ventures, GUT, WG, UWT and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at GUT.com, WG, UWT or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Adam Lawrence, so we're following on the previous episode with him. Let's jump in straight away. The last thing we were talking about was the rubber chicken. So over to you, Adam. At some point, when you start to move towards more human needs and more human ways of working. And I don't mean the other ones are dehumanizing, but actually I do, they are often, um, to see what happens when you get out food, for example, or when you get out a different set of tools than you normally used. You get out, I don't know, flip charts and pens rather than PowerPoint. Or what happens when you get out a rubber chicken, which can be a prototype, it can be a customer, it can represent a telephone or whatever, or it can just be a rubber chicken. There's also some status thinking there about who has the lowest status in the room. And if there's a rubber chicken, then it's not you. It's the chicken that gets the lowest status. But there, there, there are a million reasons to use a rubber chicken. Or as the guys in Dubai Jam have done, a rubber camel. Or the guys in Australia, rubber kangaroo. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, so. I don't know about that one. Okay. <laughs> Nice. But there's uh, people ask me, why do I have one? Uh, I have many of them, actually. Um, here's a story. So I was once in San Francisco going to the Service Design Global Conference back in 2012, I guess it must have been, which is a great conference. I really recommend it. And I was there a day early. And on Twitter, I met somebody else who was there a day early. And she said, you would go for a coffee. And so we went for a coffee. And we were walking around this wonderful, beautiful city. And she said, do you really have rubber chicken? And I said, yeah. I mean, you don't have one? And she said, no. I said, this is terrible. We have to, you know, and luckily there was a pet store right there. So I went in and I splashed out a couple of dollars and I bought a rubber chicken, you know, a small one for your purse. Yeah. And so she put this thing in her purse. She said, what do I do with this? Just put it in your purse. Just, that's, that's fine. Yeah. And she put it in her purse. And then we got onto one of the streetcars there, not one of the cable cars, the very famous ones, but a, a normal streetcar, really nice going through San Francisco. And she opened her purse to pay for the ticket. And the tram driver said, oh, rubber chicken. And he grabbed it and took it out of her purse and he squeaked it and it went all down the bus. Everyone was taking it and squeaking it and laughing and, and it went came back again, back into her purse. And we're on this bus full of laughing people suddenly. And I said, that's why. Multipurpose, put it that multi-purpose, way. Multipurpose, <laughs> multipurpose. And we slightly touched on facilitation and you use the rubber chicken to facilitate. <laughs> Sometimes, not always, not always. Yeah, well, whenever you do, do you use it for time boxing as well for... Uh, um, it's a good squeak, yeah. 
use it. That's, that's often the, the first way I introduce it. I have a small one that fits like in my hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I might say, okay, you're going to have this task now. And every three minutes you'll hear a noise, squeak, squeak. That's the first time they see it. As a timing device, I don't mention it, but some people smile, some people roll their eyes, you know, that's okay. Then you start to read, okay, where are the places in the room where I have to do more work or less work? Yeah, it's for you as well. Going back to psychology. So you mentioned you use it for time boxing, right? So you don't use a visible clock or anything like that. What do you think about this? Because there are two ways to go about it, because I've tried both as well. What's your view and your take on that one? There are times when I use a visible clock. And one of the examples is the Global Service Jam with a very, very strict deadline at the end of it. And everyone around the world is trying to meet that three o'clock Sunday local time deadline. So it's like a massive clock ticking down all over the world because that's part of the game. That's part of the challenge of that is to get this done by that time. That's part of the excitement of it as well. But if you're working on a real project, why would you stop people in the middle of something really important? Or if you're working on a real project and they've done enough, why would you ask them to keep working and start becoming detached from it because they've already done enough just because your clock is still ticking away. So in my facilitation of projects, I try, I don't just say workshops. I think with projects, what we're facilitating and workshops are part of that. We use what we call liquid time and liquid time is we will usually say, okay, you have nine minutes for this task. We usually use weird numbers. When I say we, I mean, Marcus and myself and other colleagues like Anna Kira and Renatus, we use these weird numbers to get like attention for it. And then we're watching the people to see how they're doing. And so the real clock might say there's five minutes left. But if we see that they're sort of getting, they're not focusing enough, we'll say two more minutes. Or if we see that they need longer time, we'll say you've got seven more minutes. So we sort of adjust the time as we go to maintain, if you like, the right level of focus in the room, the right level of depth. That's really important yeah, because often in creative processes you don't want people to go too deep too soon you need to give them enough time for it to be meaningful but just enough time for a quick 360 because that's all we need right now yeah and if i give you more time you go into more depth and if you go into more depth you start to fall in love with what you're discovering there and you find it even harder to get out of that hole later on so we use flexible time liquid time to help if you like manage the the progress in the room And because you work with large organizations and you started a long time ago using different tools, methodologies. (laughs) And uh, that's the next question. 52, so, I'm 52. Yeah. So really, actually, you yeah, don't look like it. I look 102, I know. No, actually, really, you don't look at all like 52. No, that's, that's because I'm overweight. So if you're overweight, it makes your face look smooth. So. <laughs> I forgot my question now. Yeah. <laughs> you said I'm very old and back in the day, I started using tools and methods. Yeah. Have you observed some patterns and have these patterns evolved when it comes to facilitating creative processes? That's a really good question. It's quite hard to separate that from my own evolution as a facilitator and what I've learned. And a lot of that has come from my journey from kind of from business to theater and back again, which has been quite, when I say business, I mean, large organizations, it could be government or whatever as well, but that sort of large organizations to theater and back to large organizations. again. I think obviously the whole digital stuff and we've been thrown into through lockdowns and so on around the world into doing things like we're doing now doing video interviews which have been really hard to organize between Milan and Germany so it's really good to do this and but even before COVID came around we were messing around with potentials for this kind of tools in physical spaces so although normally I would have a physical space and we'd use sticky notes and people write them and put them on the board it's actually very interesting if everybody has their laptop 
in the physical space and you project, if you like, your Miro mural, your online whiteboard, Lucid Spark, whatever, you project them onto the wall and then people can post a post-it without walking forward. And even if they're ashamed about their handwriting and stuff like this, yeah? And you can make sure as the facilitator on your laptop that all the post-its are the right size and the right color so no one stands out, etc. So there's some interesting dynamics around using these kind of things in a physical space, much as there is about using physical techniques in a digital space. I think this blurring is very, very interesting. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it, actually, because I want to also ask you about patterns when it comes to participants mm. and the mindset of organizations too. Have you observed anything changing? Because, you know, going back to the buzzwords, now they're hearing more about that. Yeah. When you started, maybe it wasn't that widespread as well. Absolutely. How are they accepting improv, yeah. different yeah. techniques, safe space? This is... Oscar Wilde said, the second worst thing in the world is when everyone's talking about you. And the first worst thing is when no one's talking about you. And that applies, I think, to design thinking as well, or improvisation or any of the techniques which we, or the buzzwords we get linked to. People have heard them and that makes you, makes it easier in some cases and harder in others. And often those cases are in the same room. So there's someone who has done an improv course and thinks it's the best thing in the world or who really wants to do one and then you come in and you say we're going to use some improv techniques today which I don't usually do but if you said that they get super lit up and somebody else goes oh my god no yeah another one of these clowns with the post-its and playing that double-edged sword is quite challenging so this is one of the reasons that I wear a suit at work is because I use fairly non-conventional methods so I need to at least look like the conservative faction even if I'm acting like the non-conservative faction while I do that, to have a bridge into both worlds. And I'll try and frame things. So I can do the same technique in one context and say, this is a game from applied improv. Or I might say, this is an experiment that comes from my background as a psychologist. Or I can say, this is a business technique I picked up when I worked in Japan. And they're exactly the same technique you're doing each time, but the framing around it can be really, really critical. And that, that applies to everything we do, I think. Otherwise you can set up barriers. And this is why I often say, you know, service design, we've mentioned this word a couple of times today. I often wish it was called mupa mupa mupa. Because if it was called mupa mupa mupa, people wouldn't have pre-decided already what they think about it based on their misunderstanding of two words that they know. They think they know what service means. They think they know what design is. They put them together. They say, not interested. If it was mupa 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 mupa, they might say, what's that? That would be quite do, interesting. Do you think it comes, and this is part of a bigger picture, but today you also give courses at university level, but also yourself. Mm. And you go online. I mean, anyone can come create a course today. Yeah, great. And anyone can create a certification today. So you have good mm, things, so you great. have yeah. mediocre things, you have a bit yeah. of everything, right? Yeah. Which is good and bad at the same time, because one of talking about it is good as well, because it creates awareness. But on the other side, you might not want to identify yourself with certain, I'm going to call them, as you said, clowns with post-its, right? Mm. <laughs> so how to create this balance and how to differentiate yourself and the deliverables you can do and the change within organizations? Because sometimes you can have clowns with post-its come in and say, I'll, I'll help you. But then at the end, they wouldn't be satisfied. It would kill everyone else and any opportunity of change within an organization. It's very hard as well, because going back to titles and definitions, and I'm looking at the young grads, how do they define themselves? They also need experience, but sometimes it, it can be blocked because of yeah. a title mm -hmm. or 
others what's happening. It's difficult. And this is one reason why in our practice, we generally use the term service design rather than design thinking, because design thinking, that term has been more burned by often well-meaning people who haven't really understood what it's about yet. And service design is still a bit more respected, I think, uh, as a serious thing. And this is not true. I mean, design thinking, there have been amazing projects where un- under that title, which have made massive changes and successes in the world. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not what most people have seen. And the fact that it is accessible, of course, and, and the whole point of the stuff that we do is to be accessible. Mark Stickton always says it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. Just like playing a keyboard is not rocket science. It's really hard to do it well. Most of us can kind of, you know, pick out happy birthday on a keyboard if we need to. So one of the reasons I'm torn about this is that generally speaking, people don't want what they need. This is kind of Nanny McPhee thing. You know, if you want me, you don't need me. And if you need me, you don't want me. Go and- to Ikea, right? Yeah. If I want you to <laughs> So this is a conundrum because they think that whatever we do, service design thinking is a one day workshop because that's what they've seen. And it's also what they want. So if I'm being client centered, should I give them what they want or should I at least package it in that way? Because that's what fits into their into what their project plan they've mapped out and so on. Or should I say, no, this is a way of running the entire project. It's not an add on workshop, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, ask them to be me-centered, to deliver it in a way that I think works. On the other hand, I've got a strong reason to believe that their wish is not actually what they need. And also there's this person beside me and she's got some post-its and she say, I can do a one-day workshop for you and I can revolutionize your business model. And it's a, it's a very difficult situation to be in. And I honestly find the best way through that is transparency, to talk to clients and say, the problems I've seen with that, and I'm aware there are people who will offer you that, maybe what they do is really, really good, but this is how I would approach it. Yeah, it's a tough one because it's everything, really. It's not only in design or it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. So it's very competitive anyway. And and I think that there's a space for everyone anyway, because... Yeah. And this diversity is important. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You know, I, we talked about, about certifications before and I rolled my eyes slightly because everyone's offering certifications these days. And that's really typical of a young industry. Some friends of mine are in software testing and back in the day, I guess, early 90s or so, there was no sort of, at least in, in Germany, there was no unified qualification around software testers. There were no standards of learning and so on. And they, as I understand it, sat down with all the different people offering that and said, okay, what are the standards that we all want to adhere to? And that's a really important step for an industry. It also, though, kind of locks you into where you are at that point. It's going to mean that change in your industry after that is going to have to use this structure or break out of it at some point. Yeah, and that can be useful. It can be not useful. And I think we're somewhere there as well. And there are different people popping up, offering certifications. Some of the very tiny organizations you've never heard of, you think, huh? I mean, I think if, if the SDN offers a certification in service design because it does represent the main industry in the field and the big players in that, then okay, maybe that's cool. I think it's interesting when our clients would start to certify us. I think it's very interesting what the SDA does in Scotland where they went to the government and said, okay, what do we need to do to qualify as part of the national learning standards? You know, like if you want to become a hairdresser or an electrician or a service designer, there are certain sort of steps you have on the official national learning level, how do we plug into that? That's very interesting as well. But when, if I were to go out there and offer a certification in service design, I don't think that's legitimate. 
you know, okay, I've been involved in a couple of books. Okay, I teach it, but can everybody do that? I think it depends on the end goal as well, because there are different ways. Again, it's again like everything, because today we go by LinkedIn, we go by numbers of certifications, but what about the experience on the ground as well? Yeah, sure. And why, on, in the first place, did they decide to come up with these certifications mm. in general when yeah. there was nothing about it? Because sometimes it becomes a topic of discussion. Why are they doing this? It does. Who are you to tell me that I need a certification that I get in three days when I spend two years on that, for example? Right. I'm just master, saying. master in four years or whatever. And what I also see is, which I really cannot agree with, and none of the people I've mentioned do this, which is really, really good. That's why I respect them. You get people who get certifications just for being there. I mean, how, how on earth does that work? You know, I could have been yeah. listening to music on my headphones the whole time and just sat in the Zoom call, or I could have just been at the back of the room, you know, dreaming about football, and suddenly I'm certified without any kind of testing, without any kind of practical application and so on. That's not professional. So when we're thinking about easy roads into something, that's really important to have those easy roads in to say, this is accessible. You can do this. You can learn to play the piano. That's a great one. Yeah, I can't certify you as a master pianist just by you sitting through watching me play, certainly. But encouraging you to join in is really, really cool. And it's also, it has a cost. I mean, what I've seen recently a couple of times, for example, on LinkedIn, is that somebody puts a graphic out there which says, you know, this is how X works. This is how X is different from Y. Super, super useful stuff and really, really well explained. And you read down the threads and you see five or six very experienced people, practitioners, academics, and so on, saying, uh, actually, no, it's not. This is actually wrong. And then you see 200 people saying, this is so useful. Please send me a copy. I want it for my office wall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because they're not reading the comments. They're seeing the thing and it's there and it's attractive. Yeah, it looks really good. And so you think, oh, it must be real. And someone's done it with the best intentions. It, it represents their latest iteration of the, their thinking they're trying to do. But maybe they can make it look a bit scrappier until they're sure. You know, maybe they put like, you know, in development on it or, you know, version something until they know, well, this reaches some consensus. And this is populism. And I don't want to get political about this, but this is one of the bugs in an empowered society is it makes it very easy, especially when communication is powerful, like we have it now, to take the easy road in towards things, whether that's, you know, politics or education or so on. And, and say, I will support this or I will subscribe to this because it's easy for me to get, easy for me to understand. And I think we need to be careful about this stuff. And we need to be honest about the fact that our industry is still developing. It's not new. You be Herbert Simon in the 60s and, and even older stuff than that. And they were talking about design thinking in the 90s and Berger setting up in the 90s, you know, the masters in, in service design already I think 25 years, something more than that now. Yeah. So it's not new, but it's, it's having its breakthrough in the last few years. But we still need to be aware of the fact that we're still evolving. Yeah, and, that, that's, and, and um... we should we should use that. That's useful. You know, we're not locked into anything yet. We can keep going different places and we can become more useful to people. Sorry. And be part of, yeah, shaping it. So you're trying different platforms in your work. Do you think this can be the future of work if we want to call it that way? Uh, I don't know if it is, it is the future. I believe that we, despite what people are saying about going all online and despite the benefits of that, especially to certain individuals and certain communities, that there is a major deficit in only online working. I think we're going to see a new balance and a new mix and so on. But the problem is, yes, the online working has turned out to be much better than we expected for getting work done. Unfortunately, getting work done is not the only thing that happens at the office. 
And a lot of the other things that happen at the office, while not directly related to getting work done, are really important for the company because it's things like trust being built. That is really hard to do, for example, in a Zoom room where you can't have side conversations except in chat, which are recorded, where you can't think, do I enter this room or do I not enter this room? By Based on what you see in the first couple of steps and you say, oh, sorry, I was going somewhere else. You know, this kind of thing. When you walk past a group of people and you get the feeling you should join the conversation or shouldn't join the conversation. All this stuff, and we try to compensate for that a little bit with things like backstage in terms of a sort of water cooler space. And Akira calls it a water cooler space, a brilliant description of it. We try to compensate for that, but we're physical. It's actually quite important that we smell each other sometimes. And that's not some esoteric thing. This is me as a, I'm a psychologist by training. And there are two different types of psychologists. There are the ones with the sort of nice jumpers that say, I'm okay, you're okay on them. And then there are the ones in the white coats with the chemicals, yeah? And I'm the second variety. I'm the chemicals and electrodes and white coats. I I wasn't evidence-based psychologist. So I'm not one of these sort of fluffy people. But the fact is we are physical people. We read each other as a complete physical unit. It's stressful only seeing each other from the face up. It's stressful trying to read your context, whether you're using a digital background or a physical one, et cetera, et cetera, trying to understand 20 different worlds at once. It's stressful that literally only one person can speak at a time in a Zoom meeting. These are all artificial things which are, one, painful, and two, they don't allow a lot of really useful stuff to happen. And so I think, yes, it'll be a new mix, but we are going to be back into offices. Yeah, hopefully soon. I miss it. I miss it. And I must admit, this stuff has turned out to be way better than I thought it was. For example, the Global Service Jam, the Global Jams, we were dogmatically physical for years. We say yeah. people who would say, can I come in digitally? And we'd say, sorry, no, that's not what this event is about. Yeah, And we were forced with COVID to switch to first and a purely online jam now we have a mixed model and it's great and we're learning lots about it but there are still a lot of value to be in the room together and there's a lot of value to not be in the room together as well you know especially if people with introvert preferences it's much easier to not have to rock up and be surrounded by this noise and so on but you can't have only one or the other anymore we learned so much that we do need both as long as it's balanced so yeah And where will that balance be is inter- will be interesting. And I think that may become a value proposition as well. We work physically in our office. We work digitally in our office. This is a physical team, digital team. This is a, a physical project, a digital project, or it's this balance or that balance. I'm sure we'll see sort of traditions developing of these are things you do online, these are things you do offline. You know, it's, it's just to wrap up with this one, it goes back to, you know, we have this digital transformation and some companies with the word digital Mm. corporations or not but this word will fade fade out slowly slowly because it's just uh interwined yeah. you don't need to it's say digital that's how we live so and that's interesting about design i mean i remember quite some years ago now labyrinth lovelies speak being on stage at sdn in probably stockholm i think and talking about a project with a big norwegian insurance company and which they've done and he said he'd asked the ceo of his company if, if design was going to be more of a thing In, the, in that company in future. And they said, we won't mention it anymore because it's now part of our DNA. And it's that transposing what he said, but it was along those lines. And that's interesting too. It's like in the 90s, everything was, you know, quality, 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 ISO 9000, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just becomes a thing that you can't do without, you know, sustainability now. We talk about sustainability, sustainability, sustainability. That becomes a thing that is just part of, of, of course, we have a roof on the building. You know, of, of course, we have computers in the office. How could we work without them? How could we work without quality, without sustainability, without design? And that's going to be interesting when that happens as well, without digital assist. And it's going to disappear as well. That's going to be interesting. I mean, this is my most used device. And I know some people don't like this, but I use 
my smart home system, my talking robot, my Alexa, hugely. And it's just, it's just so convenient just to, just to ask a question and not have to even stand up or go in your pocket. That huge effort of putting your hand in your pocket and opening up this thing and swiping it and typing things. I just say, hey, Alexa, what's the weather tomorrow? So, you know, that's going to be ubiquitous. It's going to become invisible because I'll ask my fridge, I'll ask my... You know, I'm, I'm talking here from, you know, Western Europe and the tradition of enormous privilege and so on. But in the context that we're talking about, I think that's going to be so different in the future. And it might mean that our lives look more like they looked years ago because the technology disappeared. So I think we can uh, go on for the next 24 <laughs> hours. I really enjoyed that. And thank you for this. I don't know if there's anything else you would like to add or we didn't touch on. I um, just wanted to invite people. Uh, you mentioned it before. As an open space, which we run twice a month at the Co-Creation School, which is one of my projects I'm involved in with two other organizations, uh, where we try and hold a space twice a month where people who are helping people do good work. So you might call yourself a facilitator, a coach, a leader, a manager, a educator. If you're helping people move forward, then you're very welcome. And we hold them twice a month on the 10th of the month and the 18th of the month in the co-creation school. And there's one which is kind of suitable for that sort of Eastern time zone. So Asia, Europe, Africa, and one for sort of Western time zones, Europe, Africa, Americas. So wherever you live in the world, there's one that works for you. And if you're in Australia or Hawaii or somewhere, maybe both will work for you. Yeah, and I highly recommend this one because I really met some awesome people. You're creating a great community. And I really like the fact that it's no recordings, no selling. Yeah. That's why it took me three months to invite you to God Talks. So I was trying not to say. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, people meet and then things happen. But we ask in these sessions to keep it. The, the idea is it's called Backstage. And the idea is, is that theater metaphor again. You can imagine that we've... We're like actors or dancers or singers or who finished a show and we're backstage. We've pulled off the wig. The makeup is running. We've opened a, a glass of something to drink and we're being ourselves. And this is the idea behind it. So I've had people who've come along to share things, which is really good. I've got this new thing. I want to show it to people. People say, I want to try something. Who wants to help me with that? People who say, I just want to listen, which is great. People who say, I've got a problem. Who can help me? People have really shared sometimes quite personal things about themselves and then very often, but it's a space you can do that if you want to in a small room, maybe, or people just want to come and have a laugh. And that's great as well. So yeah. co-creation school backstage. Yeah. All the links will be down below. Anyway. Thank you. I'd love to see people there. Yeah, thank you so much, by the way. It's <laughs> been it? great, great chatting to you. <laughs> I've enjoyed nice. myself a lot. This is the end of these two episodes with Adam Lawrence, where we discussed his experience with regards to innovation. We got lots of insights, so thank you so much for being on God Talks, Adam, and thanks everyone for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.